Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to delivering the tale of the city, its people, and the events around it. In the last chapter, I must admit, I indulged in my love for all things Viking by seriously getting into quite a lot of detail about the evolution of the Scandinavian pirates from occasional attackers into becoming, well, huge roving fleets of raiders. But I also included in that the uh, descriptions of the first two Viking attacks upon London and the impact this had. Because of that, it went far over the 30-minute mark I'd said all these podcasts would be, so I will apologise for that, and will try not to let that happen again. This episode will be looking less at the overall geopolitical situation, and try to zoom in on the town itself and the people after the devastation of the raid of 851. And it asks the question, how did the people cope with what had just happened? And what the consequences of just such a thing? So, without further ado then, this is chapter 10 of the story of London. Survivors. begin in the year 852. I will not be repeating the events of the year before, as I possibly went over them to excessive detail in the last chapter. All that we need to know right now is that a massive force of Vikings had attacked the town, the King of Mercia had been driven off in its defence, and London had been left a burning ruin. How does one cope with that? How did people cope with trauma in the past? It is a surprisingly often asked question. There really does seem to be a curiosity within us all as to how our ancestors processed such terrible times. Sometimes the question is driven by a sense of empathy, and sometimes it's driven by a sense of contempt at our own society as it is. You see, some people and I'm afraid to say often very unpleasant people, have this belief that we in our current generation are somehow weaker than our ancestors. But whatever the motivation, people eventually come round and ask the questions, did humans back then in the past experience trauma the way we do in the present? Did they suffer the same way we did and process it the same way we do? So, in our story, it is January 852. We do not know the exact weather at the time, but it's fair to assume it is icy cold, the freezing grasp of a British winter in full bloom. The survivors of the raid upon London the year before would be coming to terms with their town having been violated. Much had been burned down, so they would have, we hope by now, Rebuilt simple homes, basic shelters that would offer them a modicum of protection from the freezing winds and chilling mornings. We have to assume they had food. 
Maybe not arms or charity, although that's to be expected at some point, but certainly by now there would be enough to see them through the long time until the next harvest. They would be engaged in a process of rebuilding, of feeding the hungry survivors, and of salvaging their lives after so traumatic an event. And this was a process being repeated across Kent and England and across Scotland and Ireland and Frankia. Our residents of London would not have been alone in this process, which means when seeking to find out what the psychological impact of such an event was, we can cast our nets further afield to see what we can discover about survivors from right across the region. Alas, there exists no account of such things, of symptoms we would describe as trauma in a recognisable form today. Since we find nothing that we could clearly describe as a manifestation of post-traumatic stress disorder, which we can directly compare and, and categorise against the modern symptoms of such things, we automatically assume the lack of evidence means it simply didn't happen, and this in turn has led to some very strange theories about how people were in the past. We get this belief that humans back then were emotionally harder than we were, that they didn't feel the psychological pains we feel now, that they were mentally tougher than us somehow. Such observations are not just wrong, they are deeply flawed, as they suffer, as does the original inquiry, from the simple mistake of trying to quantify something using the wrong way of measuring it. That comparing how we in the 21st century act after some traumatic event with how people acted after the same events in the 9th century, while it's an interesting proposition, is a bit like trying to gauge climate change information, but using only the hours of daylight as the only permissible measurement. It would give you information, accurate information, that cannot be argued with, but it's not really relevant information. Hours of daylight don't tell you about prevailing and underlying temperature, for example, and as such, while it is certainly an observable way of measuring something, it's not really fit for its purpose now, is it? In a similar light, a direct comparison between how we react to disaster and how people in the 9th century reacted does allow some insight and does tell us something, but isn't an accurate way to understand people in the past. We need to have a better metric of measuring such things. And that is possible, I believe, but to understand that, we have to understand the shifting nature of human experience. Humans are simply humans. Genetically and biologically, we have pretty much remained in the same evolutionary niche for the last 200,000 years or so, and all humans experience the world the same way. We breathe, we eat, we feel fear and terror, we laugh, we cry. Our connection with our common ancestry is visceral and true. Humans today are as humans of yesteryear. This is a baseline that cannot be moved. And yet, where we do differ is how we perceive the world around us and conceptualize the way we think and react. 
The people of the past would see the same situation as we do today, but their brains, biologically identical to ours, would consider things in a way we simply do not. And all of this is a way to kind of avoid the question. And not because I don't want to answer the question, but because this podcast is the story of London and not, alas, an examination into the changing nature of human society and the human experience and and it's not an examination to how our ancestors saw the world. So maybe I will save that for another day. It requires a lot of explanation and would take a good hour or so just to do the subject justice. Suffice to say, people did see the world differently to us and I'm going to leave it at there knowing that it's a tantalizing answer and requires a lot more thought and attention. But drawing back to the question I asked earlier, how did the residents of London cope with such a traumatic thing? I think we begin to see part of their response because it was this age that we saw the creation of a new identity. I have mentioned in previous parts how the residents of London saw themselves as Mercian insofar as they were part of Mercia. But I think there is a sense of them becoming Londoners after that second Viking attack. I mean, think about it. As an emporium, their community was already different from those communities around it. It was a place that profited upon the interactions with others. It saw more strangers in a month than their neighboring community saw in a year. It was not like the other towns near it. Londoners were different. And this difference, I think, became, during this era, much more important to them. But we'll come back to this in a moment. Because we need to add just a few more aspects into what these people were going through. Because we know this is an era that actually changed the way people thought. The era we're talking about, the great Viking onslaught upon Britain and Europe, it was an age that saw the number of books being written on this island literally cease for decades. And the atrocities carried out were wrought upon things more ephemeral than just people and property. It was to see the destruction of more than lives. The era to come saw the death of ideas themselves. It saw the destruction of memory. Proof? Fine. Consider our principal source for almost all the information we have talked about during the last few chapters is something called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. This was a West Saxon account of the events that took place during this period and the centuries before this date. But it was always their point of view, no more, no less, cherished for what it tells us, but limited and deeply broken as evidence of the actual events. It is filled with vicissitudes and omissions based upon their bias and the need to make their rulers look good, even to the point of outright deception within its annals. There exists no equivalent covering the histories of Northumbria 
or East Anglia, or of Mercia. It's not that such records were not written down. The chances are they probably were. It's just that the West Saxon records, they're the only ones to have survived the time to come. And as such, the only one whose records remain, whose voices are heard. The voices of Mercia, of Northumbria, their version of events, their history, their stories, their memories, the soul of these nations themselves, they are lost to us, destroyed in all probability in the chaos that was taking place around them, as well as this. Any serious historian of this era also notices something else, one final thing happening that gives a keen insight as to the horror the survivors would be coping with. Kings suddenly appear and disappear from the surviving records. We see a fleeting mention of a name. Some were described as a king in some place, and then they disappear from the records. And a few years later, a new name appears as king of that place, and we know nothing more than that. Or even worse, some kings do not even appear on the records at all. We only find they existed by finding their names stamped upon coins scattered deep in the soggy and dark earth. In some cases, we've had to estimate where they ruled and when they ruled from just using those coins and trying to fit them within a forensic reconstruction, exactly like after some macabre crime scene as we desperately try to work out what the hell happened here. While we found no direct evidence for it, no clear, well, this is what happened as we work, we also cannot help but fear that the reason for these kings suddenly disappearing from the annals of the age is that they were dying at an alarming rate, struck down by something far more pernicious and far more effective than any plague, that we are in an era where the number one cause of death, the principal cause of mortality for every ruler and noble, and by extension every man and woman in the regions surrounding London, was possibly homicide. And all of this leads us to the fate of King Beothwulf of Mercia, the ruler of London when the Viking attack hit. And this is really the final factor those survivors of London would have had to deal with. So we know that according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, that massive Viking raid smashed into the town of London. And it also makes a thing about mentioning the actions of the King of Mercia. And this is important, because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle never mentioned the Kings of Mercia unless it could help it. Because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle never liked to mention the kings of Mercia. It's like the entire document goes out of its way to try and pretend Mercia wasn't important at all. I mean, offer 
of Mercia, one of the most important and powerful kings of the era, a peer of Charlemagne, who ruled for decades, the man who Wessex's King Egbert obviously tried to emulate in literally everything he did, offer only warrants four mentions in the entire decades of his rule. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't mention Mercia unless the West Saxons want to say something bad about it or they're forced to because of circumstances. But it is that very reluctance to mention it that means when you do see its name, you can pay attention to that mention and are right and justified in wondering why now, what's going on, why mention Mercia now? Remember, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was never an account of events. It was a bunch of political documents made to make Wessex look good, hiding inside a historical document trench coat. So that means in order to work out what happened to the King of Mercia, we need to look closely at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. See, the events appear very straightforward. 350 ships worth of Vikings turn up, and tear through Kent, and then arrive at London. The King of Mercia turns up to meet them. He is driven off, specifically implying he ran away. The Vikings are later stopped by the glorious army of the West Saxons. And then the very next year, we have a new king in Mercia, a man called Burgred, the last of the Mercian kings. And he gets a mention straight away in those West Saxon documents, mostly because he married King Aethelwulf's sister. So technically, he's the brother-in-law of the king of the West Saxons. He is one of the family. And as such now, he gets more mentions in the Chronicle than any Mercian king before him. And as I said in the last chapter, there seems to be something missing from the narrative. Elements of the story not apparent in the chronicle. We do not know the fate of King Beothwulf or the fate of his heirs. We do not know who this King Burgred is either. He appears literally out of nowhere, takes the throne, marries into the rather venal about who they allow to marry into them dynasty of King Egbert, and he becomes the single most pro-Wessex Mercian ruler ever. He allows joint coinage be produced. He seems to act the same way Kent does for much of his reign, almost, almost like an underking. So what did happen to King Beorthwulf? I have a theory. It's not entirely my theory. I heard it from other historians, but I like the theory. So I'm going to say the theory aloud, here and now, and allow the listener make up their own mind as to its validity or not. As long as they keep in mind this is not a certain historical fact, merely a speculative idea, then there should be no sin on my part. This is the theory. 
that with the massive force of Vikings bearing down on London, we ask the question, what possible reason could the King of Mercia have to meet them where he did? Why even defend London on the edge of his territory? Seriously, these Vikings were rampaging through Kent for a while, which was Wessex's problem. Mercia had time to evacuate people, let the Vikings find an empty town, and then turn their attention back to Wessex. But for whatever reason, he stood. And I think he wasn't supposed to be standing alone. I think the plan was to have Mercia and Wessex send a united force to confront these Vikings. I mean, Mercia is there, and a short time later, we know Wessex is there with its army. I'm not surprised Wessex would send an army, given its, its lands are being ravaged. But I am at Mercia. Was there a deal made, an arrangement? The two forces stand beside one another and stop the Vikings. I believe there could have been, and that Wessex simply didn't show. Maybe they were delayed, or maybe they didn't show deliberately. And why would they do that? Remember, the king of the West Saxons' father had once been driven into exile by Mercia. He returned and set up as king in defiance of Mercia, but had survived by keeping his head down. He had meekly been quiet and timid for decades, biding his time fearful of the Mercian anger. When he sensed Mercia was weak, he had attacked suddenly, twice in the space of a few years, and had taken control of the Mercian kingdom, only to lose it all a year later when King Wiglaf retook the throne and the kingdom. And all the evidence suggests that that King Egbert was so filled with spite towards Mercia, that he prevented it from being able to mint its own coins. Alas for him, when Wiglaf died, King Beothwulf took the throne and Mercia went back to coin producing and being the power Norse of Wessex. So when people ask, why would King Aethelwulf of Wessex deliberately screw over the King of Mercia? My reply is simply, why the hell wouldn't he? In short, King Aethelwulf of Wessex, I believe, didn't show up to fight when the Vikings attacked until after the Mercian king had lost his army and all was driven away and all was killed. Because we know Beothwulf disappears from the story at this point. Did the Vikings kill him? They could have. They could have slain him as he defended London valiantly. And then the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just omit this and openly lies when they're saying he ran away. Or maybe he did survive and was driven off. And later, Wessex arranged for him to be murdered, him and his heirs. Or maybe it was all Burgred, a Mercian opportunist, seeing a chance to grab the throne and the only way he could hold on to it was getting into bed with the West Saxons. You see, we don't know. But all we do know is that suddenly there is a new pro-Wessex regime in charge of Mercia with a stranger who marries into Egbert's family and bends the knee to Wessex, or at least is compliant 
with West Saxon demands. Something happened. It looks, it screams out to me that it was a coup d'etat, a pro-Wessex regime change. But we don't know. Yet, as the residents of London rebuilt the town after the destruction, it had to deal with a new regime in charge and the growing geopolitical influence upon London by Wessex, not as part of some natural evolution of history, but probably due to some decidedly shady shenanigans on behalf of the decidedly shady family of King Egbert of Wessex. So when we ask how did they respond to the dawn of 852 and the events that have just happened, we have to include the possibility that as well as the trauma of the violation of the town by the Vikings, their former customers turned violent, there was also a sense that maybe their other former customers in the West Saxon lands were being just as bad for them, that the only redeeming feature that the Saxons had was that they didn't attack the town, but they still murdered to get their own way. How could you respond to all of this? Well, I believe we do have a clear indication as to the mentality of London in the aftermath, not seen in anything written down, but in a simple geographic reality that is irrefutable. Go back just 12 years earlier. In 840, two great towns stood at the mouth of the English Channel and the Southern North Sea. Two trade emporiums, centers of commerce and wealth. To the north, Londonwick. To the south, Quintovic. One belonged to Mercia and was patronised by the likes of King Offa. The other belonged to the Frankish Empire and was patronised by the likes of Charlemagne. Of the two, Quintovich was the larger, the richer, the more well-established. Of the two, Quintovich was clearly the more important, the better defended, the more powerful. And today, well, London remains as London, and Quintovic is lost to us. It doesn't even have a rune we can visit. It was once, perhaps, the single most important trade port on the north coast of France. And yet we can say with utter certainty that during this age, between Londonwick and Quintovic, one of these two places died. Its residents were unable to cope with the horrors inflicted upon them. They ran, fled, went elsewhere. Their survivors scattered. But in that other place, they stayed. They lift themselves, they lift their heads, they rebuild, they restore, they come back, they defy. It is now we begin to see the first birth 
of that which was come to define London in the long centuries to come. The defiance of London, the utter stubbornness that has defined the city and its residents so often over the long years ahead. They ignored both raiders and kings. A stubbornness was being born, an intransigence of character. The raid the year before was probably the cause of the destruction of the Church of St. Paul's. The residents just rebuilt the place. They just rebuilt it. They just got on with it. And this, for me, in these acts, is the answer to our question. What was London's response to the trauma? What was the mindset of the survivors? They were not unique in having such resilience. Across the region, many rebuilt themselves after the Vikings had come. But there was a steel being forged here. And no, it was not indicative of people being emotionally stronger than we are in the current day. The residents of Quintovich clearly were not. And this wasn't a Saxon thing or an English thing. That defiance was in spite of those things. This was a London thing. And, as we will see, this is proven in the events that followed. The years passed and something lucky took place. The most optimistic of us would say that every cloud has a silver lining, every setback has an asset hidden within it. To the survivors of London in 852, as they gazed over the burned remnants of their town, they would probably be hard-pressed to expect a silver lining in that situation. But any which way you look at it, there was. And it was a big one. The raid had devastated the town. Much of it was burned. The mint had been looted and was empty. The residents had probably been kidnapped and killed. But everything valuable seems to have been, in the short term, taken. London had nothing worth stealing again at this moment. And this, this wretched state, would provide it with a modicum of protection as the opportunistic Viking fleets began prowling around, looking for new, lucrative targets, you can't be a target if you have nothing really worth stealing. And as such, for the next decade or so, London exists within its broken state as all around them we know the land burned. We know that across the English lands and Ireland and Frankia and Scotland, the Vikings unleashed new fleets and new raids. We have reports of Viking forces rampaging in inland Britain, miles from any river or from the sea, attacking and stealing anything they could without fear of retribution. We hear nothing of London in all this time, but it is not abandoned, it is not destroyed. And we also know that afterwards, after this moment, it became more than just a market. Its citizens were treated with a degree of trepidation. There is a respect accorded to Londoners which suggests, in lieu of there being anything before or during these missing years in the history to suggest why, 
that a deep sense of anger and defiance was being born amidst the residents, an arrogance that was strong enough that everyone, be they Viking or Anglo-Saxon, be they conqueror or defender, would be forced to contend with. But there is still a little while to go before we'd reach that point. Because over those next dozen years or so, as London rebuilt itself and restored itself and was effectively born again, elsewhere in Britain, things had taken a dramatic turn. The ad hoc, hydrarchy originating fleets that had been prowling the waters around Britain had realised the entire land was weak and fractious, that it was potentially ripe for the taking. Something monstrous, which later generations would come to call the Great Heathen Army, landed on English shores, and in its wake, all of the island would be changed forever. But that part of the story is to come. For now, we will end this chapter in the year 866, as we will save the next one to begin to look at the era from 866 until 886, the last 20 years in the life of Londonwick. All right, that's it. So for those who have asked and for those who do not know, I post a rough draft script to each episode uh, on the social media site Imager. And uh, when I post it, I also include some pretty pictures and useful maps. And I do this for every single chapter. So it is entirely possible for you, if you wish, to read along as you listen along, if you so desire. I will include a link as to where you can find all the scripts and images in the description of this show. Added to that, I'm going to make a simple and humble request. I really enjoy doing this podcast and will continue to make it as it is huge fun and allows me to talk about the city I love so much. If you would like to support the show, you could always buy me a coffee, either via the link included in the description of the show, or even better, become a member. Membership will entitle you to a bunch of bonus things I plan to do for members over the next few months. As I said, most of this will be kept on the Imja site, so just check it out. And that will allow you to contact me, and I want to thank the listeners who have contacted me with questions, It's really, really appreciated, and I've had some amazing feedback from people who seem to be enjoying the story of London. Anyway, I will end this chapter here. Is there more I could have said? Yes, but these materials may appear in future episodes or be given exclusively to members who support the podcast. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and I will see you next week for another chapter in the story of London.